for tuning in to Microbiome Matters, a podcast for healthcare professionals and researchers brought to you by Yakult Science. This podcast aims to share latest research and insights from experts about the science behind our gut microbiome. Hello, my name is Rafaela and I'm the science communications intern at Yakult. Today, we are joined by Professor Glenn Gibson, who is a professor of food microbiology at the University of Reading and his current research is dominated by gut microbiome interactions and dietary intervention. In this episode of the podcast, Professor Gibson will be sharing with us how the microbiota changes during the life course. To begin with, can you give us a brief overview of how the gut microbiota changes during the life course? There are certain physicochemical factors which affect the composition of the gut microbiota, like stress, age, intake of antimicrobials, other pharmaceuticals. But diet is a big driver into, into its composition. So in the early years, we are either breast or formula fed. Um, and in particular, breastfed infants have bifidobacterium lactobacillus high levels, which is actually pretty good news. And then when we move off milk onto weaning foods, the gut flora, the gut microbiome changes again in response to the different nutrients which are provided. And then during adult years, when we begin to go to school and we begin to take on a more adult type diet, the profile again changes a little bit right up until more elderly years, again, when probably our diet is not the same as it was when we were younger. And in that case, it is known that as we get older, our levels of the good ones, the bifidobacteria do decline. And so there is a lot of interest in trying to reverse that age-related decline in bifidobacteria to try and improve resistance to infections and decrease inflammation in the gut. We've heard that the mode of birth is an important factor when it comes to early life colonization of the gut microbiota. What differences are seen between babies born by cesarean section versus vaginal delivery? And does this have any impact on an infant's health? Well, I think what people think about this is that the caesarean does not give a full transfer of the microbiota, whatever a full transfer is, by the way. And so while we are being born, we acquire our microbiome. And so in the vaginal route, it comes from mum's vaginal or fecal flora. And in the caesarean route, it largely comes from the environment, albeit there's also contributions from biological fluids that are in the, in the delivery space or delivery room. And so there are differences. The Caesarean tends to have more what are called facultative anaerobes. So these are anaerobic bacteria who do not mind the presence of oxygen, whereas the vaginal is more strictly anaerobic. And what I thought was fascinating was studies several years ago now from Finland, which showed that these early delivery processes could impact for up to seven years after birth. So any differences in the kind of facultative to strictly anaerobic ratios depending on mode of delivery, were pretty long-lasting. But I do think that really diet does, as we've talked about already, control a lot of this. And when the child maybe goes on to breastfeeding, things begin to even out rather. So we do see this difference between mode of delivery. Do you think there are any similarities when we speak about breastfeeding versus formula feeding? Well, yes, uh, breastfeeding, it's always said breast is best. The the idea is that the positive bacteria respond very readily to human breast milk. And this is, I mean, human breast milk has got lots and lots of lots of ingredients in it. 
But one of the main ingredients are collections of oligosaccharides, human milk oligosaccharides. There's, there's lots of them. And these act as prebiotics in that they stimulate a positive gut microbiome composition. So they're selectively metabolized by the good guys, to put it in a simpler sense. And formula feeding traditionally does not achieve that. But however, certain formula feed companies are now adding prebiotics to their ingredients to try and more closely resemble the microbiological effects. Now, we will never, ever be able to make breast milk in a bottle. But I think the, the steps of actually altering the formula feeds to more closely resemble breastfeeding is, is probably a, a good thing to do, although it will never be 100% of a match. How important do you think initial early life colonization is in determining our long-term microbiota and subsequent health? Hugely important. There's very good studies published now showing when, when, when kids were formula-fed with prebiotics or formula-fed without prebiotics, there were big changes in how their ability to resist infection was driven but also atopic issues like certain allergies, eczema, asthma, skin issues. But those types of effects lasted for us. So albeit that the the children were fed for the first few months of their lives, either the prebiotics or not, or breastfed, their ability to challenge infections and atopic issues was long-lasting for two, three, four, five years. So I think these early, maybe not so much the delivery method, has a massive impact upon health, but certainly the type of feeding regime does. So we know that these initial early life exposures are important, but if a baby was born via cesarean section and did not receive any breast milk, is their gut microbiota going to be permanently affected or does the introduction of solid foods at around six months of age help to counteract this? I think the second of those so when we take in solid foods or, or weaning foods, they're a complex mixture of different fermentable substrates. So the gut microbiome is going to kind of even out at that stage. So, yeah, there are differences between cesarean and vaginal route of delivery, but these can be counteracted by the diet. And around about the time of weaning, I think things are pretty stable between the two. We've heard that having siblings or owning a cat or a dog and getting soil on our hands as children is helpful for developing a diverse gut microbiota. Can you tell us a bit about why this is and whether it's linked with hygiene hypothesis or the idea that we're all a bit too clean these days? <laughs> well, I think we have to be clean. And, uh, you know, we, we've seen a virus sweeping the world in the last, last nine or 10 months and the hugely destructive nature of that and you know we've gone for hand sanitizers now masks social distancing that has to be has to be the case but yeah i mean there is an underlying hypothesis that a little bit of dirt is not a bad thing because that stimulates a non-specific immune response and helps to build up our rates of infection so we we wouldn't want to live in a you know michael jackson bubble or, so, or something like that because as soon as you get exposure outside of that you're probably going to be pretty ill but yeah pets uh, the microbiome of cats and dogs is very different to, to that of humans. The same for when we visit farms and there's feeling or touching of, of the animals. You've got to pick up some, some things for sure. Uh, how long lasting they are is, is debatable because, uh, you know, our diet really does pick out a certain type of gut microbiome composition. So I think the, the exposure is probably not as, as long lasting as, as, as we may be um, expected to be. Okay, that's very interesting. So now we're moving on to adulthood. Our gut microbiota becomes more stable. 
but what are some of the key factors that might influence the composition of our gut microbiota? So stress, intake of medications, levels of exercise, and certainly diet. So diet, so we eat, you know, typically three times per day, but we also feed our gut microbiome three times a day when we do that. And a lot of the ingredients are handled by the body. They're absorbed or broken down in the gut. Or absorbed from the gut, but what is left is then susceptible to fermentation, which is the breakdown by gut microbes, and they will ferment mixtures of carbohydrates, proteins, lipids, maybe even vitamins that are broken down, and that picks out certain different components of the microbiome and certain products. So our gut microbiome, if it's high in fiber, will look different to someone who has a diet which is high in protein, and these things are, are quite interchangeable because. You know, we, we've done a lot of studies with volunteers and when we feed particular diets, it only takes a few days for the gut microbiome to change to reflect that diet. So things do occur quite quickly or alter quite quickly. So what happens to our gut microbiota as we age and move into older adulthood? Well, the levels of the positive microbes decrease. This, this was shown in very early data in the 1970s in Japan. And, and there's some really classical studies where over the life course, the microbiome was looked at and bifidobacteria and lactobacilli showed an age-related decrease, which is not, not really good news. And I think this is probably why, you know, when there's a food poisoning outbreak, it's the elderly who are more susceptible. Levels of inflammation, you know, low-grade inflammation increase in the gut. The, the covid related infections are driven by inflammation that maybe is why more elderly people are, are susceptible than younger people so that's the main driver the early data in japan have recently been confirmed in other areas of the world north and south europe as well as the us using sort of today's methodology so it is kind of agreed that the levels of the positive microbes do decline as we get older and do you think this decrease in diversity makes us more susceptible to illness as we get older. I don't know whether it's the decrease in diversity per se, because that takes in the whole collection of, of gut microbes. I think it's more with the levels of bifidobacteria decreasing, so will their function. And I think functionality is the key thing in all of this. But yeah, uh, the main factors driving it are probably, again, diet. Uh, maybe there's less intake of fiber, less fruit and veg. But I also think that the receptors in the gut change. There is that there are ideas that basically the bifidobacteria don't stick around as well as they used to. And and there are on the good side of this, there are many studies using probiotics and prebiotics to, to reverse that with very positive outcomes on immune response and to infection. And again, I know we're going to talk about these in more depth in, in later podcasts. So we'll uh, look forward to that. So do you think we can learn anything from the gut microbiota of centenarians and supercentenarians? Well, hopefully, how, learn how, long, how they managed to get that far. That would be a good thing. But yes, I mean, any analysis of the gut microbiota will allow us to look at predisposition to disorders, predisposition to improved health and the type of diet that the volunteers or the, or the subjects had. And even going back, we, we've done work with archaeologists where we've been given coprolites, which are ancient fecal remains, to unravel the type of gut flora that our ancestors had, their diet and predisposition to disease as a result. And we've had them, we've had some which are, gosh, they go back 5,000 years, others that go back 
two or three thousand years, and then we've got some from Roman digs, which are more recent than that. And there's been questions about, for instance, when the Romans, when they came to the UK, used cows for milk and not just meat, and trying to detect the presence of milk responding bacteria in the coprolites gives us a bit of a handle on that. So that's what we can learn from the gut microbiome of pretty much anyone, including people who've lived over 100. That's very interesting. So we've gone through the life course and how the gut microbiota changes, but what do you think your overall top tip for maintaining a diverse gut microbiota throughout the life course is? Well, probiotics and prebiotics, and we'll, we'll come back to those. But in terms of general diet, high fiber, it's, it's the things we always hear about. High fiber, high carbohydrate, resistant starch, fermentable substrates are far better for the gut microbiome than high protein. So we need protein and fat in our diet for other reasons. But in general, that is kind of bad news for the gut microbiome. So it tends to be the things which are healthy for other reasons, like high fiber, fruit and veg, do count for the gut microbiome as well. And the reason is the end products, which are the fermentation end products from those ingredients are beneficial for health, mainly short chain fatty acids, which can have very profound influences all over the body. Thank you so much for giving us an insight into the gut microbiota throughout the life course. We have gone from birth all the way to supercentenarians. In the next few episodes with Professor Glenn Gibson, we will be talking about the role the gut microbiota plays in health and disease. Thanks for tuning in. For more information and to sign up for future episodes of our Microbiome Matters podcast, go to yakult.co.uk forward slash HCP. Thank you.